1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm speaking to you from New Books in Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Keith Rathbone and I'm coming to you, as I always uh, joke, live from Macquarie, but we're actually recording this at night, so I'm at home and not at Macquarie University. I am here today with uh, two amazing uh, researchers, writers, scholars, Uh, who have written a fantastic book on women's football or women's soccer here in Australia. The authors of the book are Dr. Fiona Crawford, who's a writer, editor, researcher, whose work engages with social, environmental, and sports issues. And she writes for a range of publications, including 442 and works frequently with Football Australia. And also Dr. Lee McGowan, who's a researcher, writer, and teacher working at the University of the Sunshine Coast, uh, and his primary research interests are at the intersection of sport, culture, and community engagement. And together, they are the authors of Never Say Die, the 100-year overnight success of Australian women's football, out with University of New South Wales Press in 2019. Uh, Hello, uh, Fiona, and hello, Lee. Thank you for joining us.
0: Thanks for having us. Thanks for
1: having us. Yeah, yeah, I love I love the book. Um, we were joking before I turned on the recording. That's a very timely book, and and since it's a very timely book, I guess we should ask uh, how did you how did you come up with such a timely book? How did you develop this project?
0: It's probably even worth going back to the beginning. So Lee and I met back in two thousand and eight at an event called the Homeless World Cup, which is an, it's a football event, and they use football to tackle homelessness, and that's where we sort of first cross paths. And then a couple of years later, um, I was about to go back and do my PhD and Lee had actually finished his PhD and became my supervisor. So it was, we went through this sort of PhD journey together and he got me across the line, which for which I'm forever grateful. Um, and then once we got sort of past there, we started looked up, um, could see a bit of, I think, space or a little bit of potential. And then we talked about, you know, this project because we were constantly talking about football anyway, because we both loved it. And yeah, we kind of figured let's give it a crack. Would you have anything to add to that, Lee? that's my recollection of it anyway.
2: Oh well, look, I, I think that's a, a very generous of you, Fiona. I think that um your PhD was an amazing piece of work and um you uh, it was it was just a privilege to be working with you on it. The um I remember really distinctly us being at a W League game and um and the girls my girls who had been asking questions about when the game when women had started playing and what was going on with it. And you you were the first person I asked to help me answer their questions because you you had had me at, I remember Fiona, we went to a game at ANZ Stadium in maybe 20 or maybe 2016, 2017. And there was only 500 people at it. And then there we were last Saturday in Brisbane and there's 25,000 people at a friendly. It was unbelievable.
0: Yeah, it was wild. It's wild. So I think, I mean, we were joking before we pressed record, but I think we, if we did anything right with this book, it was that we saw the potential um, and the uplift with women's sport. And we saw just how special it was and how many people would fall in love with it if it was given the right resources and attention. And I think yeah, in, in writing the book, we both recognised the potential, but we also sort of, I think, wrote on the co- coattails a little bit. Um, yeah. <laughs> as people were falling in love with the Matildas, we gave them something to, to work with.
1: Yeah, I did. I, I have to say, like, when I was reading the book, um, you know, I, I'm a sports historian, I felt like I knew a fair amount about um, kind of, you know, the history of, of women's football, at least from a European point of view, Um, But I I have to admit, like, I learned a lot about what happened in Australia. And I also kind of felt like there was a through line of not just recovery or rediscovery, but also maybe a kind of, you know, corrective like, hey, there's this great history that we can recover. But also there's lessons for the now and what and what was happening in the past. And maybe we should go back to some of these things. So I'm wondering kind of when you were writing it, did you write it? as a kind of as a kind of corrective you know a a call for you know real women's organization of women's sports or is that was that just me reading it in a particular mood i guess
2: keith i think you've obviously been talking to the publicist for the book it sounds like you've absolutely nailed the intent behind the book but i'm going to hand it to, to fiona to see what she thinks
0: oh i would agree with that absolutely and i think those were the constant conversations we had before writing it and while we were writing it it's it was as much about here's some really fantastic things that have happened, but it was also about the same issues kept coming up and the same challenges and that, you know, it felt like women's football was overcoming so many of them and then having to overcome them over and over and over.
2: Would that Was that what you would say, Lee? Or? Oh, look, absolutely. I think one of the things I think is worth uh, highlighting is that um, this, this was the books that – a result of two complementary sets of knowledge, Keith. The um I had been unpacking that historical stuff, the nineteen twenties stuff, and then the re-emergence of the game, particularly in Brisbane in the nineteen sixties, and then this kind of explosion that happened with the women's rights movements in the late sixties and early seventies as well. Whereas few us really well connected and really um knowledgeable about what's going on in the contemporary game, you know. So we so we came to the book bringing these two really complementary sets of knowledge. And so discussing those, uh, coming at it from those two ends of the conversation, if you like, was where we started to recognise these similarities. Although I would imagine, uh, Fiona, these are challenges that you'd see across women's sport.
0: Absolutely. And I think part of of the challenge is even working in the space because there was no media coverage, because the games weren't broadcast, if people like me didn't see it because I was often the eyes and ears for the team, um, it was sort of in my head or if I didn't know who to go ask about something or to get tipped off by a family member or another player about here's this thing you need to focus on, it never got discussed. And I think there's so much of that with women's football that, yeah, it was it was constantly us trying to find out and figure it out. And that, that has happened until I think the last couple of years. So for you to have to go through historical archives has been one way of finding that information. And for me, it was that contemporary level of, okay, I've met, you know, Caitlin Ford's mum and she's told me a story about driving back and forth from Wollongong. So we're going to, we're going to investigate that a bit further, but it was, it was relationships that so was being tipped off. And I think there's just so much more that we still don't know that is in players' heads or administrators' heads that we just, yeah, so many stories that haven't been uncovered yet.
1: Yeah. That really straight, I mean, that really struck me in reading the book, um, you know, I, I, I'm a academic in Australia too. So I've done the trove searches and so much of it you can find this amazing material, but then this book really couldn't have been written without these um, personal histories, these oral interviews, talking to the people in question. And so maybe you can talk a little bit about that, Fiona, because it sounds like that was, that was your expertise, but how did you, you know, how did you make these connections and, you know, were people anxious to tell their stories or did you have to coax it out of them or, you know?
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I mean, Lee could probably explain this, but there were so many people um, who were surprised we were interested in their stories because their stories had been so undervalued for so long, particularly I can't, their name escapes me, but I'm thinking the person who turned up to the FIFA camp and was sent home, Lee, that you wrote. Yeah.
2: There's so many.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you you could speak to that probably better than me, but it was just so many people who were first surprised that we were interested in some of the detail because it seemed so mundane to them or it was a long-forgotten thing and nobody had ever shown any kind of interest before. Uh, but it was also then once they understood – I think they, they trusted us. I think that's what it i is. is. I'd, I'd worked with them for some time, so when I was asking them these questions, they thought – not really sure what you're going to do with this, but okay, yeah, sure, we'll answer your questions. And I think they were all pretty pleasantly surprised with what ended up being on the page. They're like, oh, you really were writing a book or, oh, okay. Like, <laughs> we definitely got a bit of that. They're like, oh, it's like it's an actual book. <laughs> um, but I think it's that so much of women's football doesn't get that attention and there are so few books written about women's football. It was it was a bit of a learning experience, I
2: think, for all of us. Yeah. Yeah, the, um, there was a couple of because uh, f- we started the project uh, really for me started in a research around the game in Brisbane, and so as well as looking at the historical stuff, I started talking to people who were who were playing the game uh, in the early seventies, and and met some people who played in the late sixties as well, and so um, uh, so I, so I we put together an exhibition um, as part of that project uh, that toured around brisbane libraries and we i did a few presentations in libraries and stuff and i was amazed at people turning up to see a uh, what had happened and but there was as many people in the audience uh, who had come to say well, i played i played do you want to hear my story um as well as people who were turning up who were like women's football how long have women been playing football for so it, it was amazing and like I'd invariably come home from these presentations with a bag full of stuff that someone had given me, newspaper clippings and photographs of medals and, and all sorts of stuff. But um the Lynn Ketter story is particularly interesting in that um Lynn had been involved a uh, right like in the really early 70s of women's football and had wanted to become a coach and um, went to the coaching uh, training centre at Tullibudjara. Uh, where all the men's football training was happening and and joined a course. Uh, Paid the money for a five-day live-in course at Tullar Abadjara. She did the um, C licence first, and she was the only woman of of the 48-people group um, on the the training session, the training course, and I think that was a three-day course. And then the B licence is much more involved. It's a five-day course, and so she turned up uh, as the only woman in this group of seventy seventy one other uh, seventy two in the group and seventy one men, and she took part in the first day and everything was fine. And then towards the end of the second day, this fella, his name is Eric Worthington, and we've since discovered that he was heavily involved in a uh, what was happening with um, English uh, women's football. He was in- involved in stuff that was going on with that. Um, but he turned up and told her effectively that FIFA had made an edict. That women were not allowed to train on the same football pitches as men, and the um, and that Lynn had to get off the course, uh, had to get off the, the training course, and so they wouldn't they wouldn't give her our money back. Um, they wouldn't even let her sit and watch what was going on. So they just sent her home after two days of, of this course because apparently um, FIFA had told um, told the the football association organization um, whoever was looking after the course. Because it's a national cause, there's people there from all over the country, and so they chased her, chased her away. But um, so either there's a few stories like that where, where, but for the strength and courage of a handful of individual women, um, the, the, the things would, wouldn't have changed. It would have stayed the way it was um, until probably the mid '90s, you know. But these women were really smart and um, really uh, diligent in, in their approach and a. Uh, and were able to to build an organisation for themselves in the seventies. Um, Heather Reid, uh, who was really generous in her interviews uh, around the book, and um, and has been helping Fiona and I each on on our current projects as well. And um, and her dear friend Elaine Watson, who's the matriarch of of uh, Australian women's football. Um, these these are women who, without without them, that the the recognition and infrastructure for the game wouldn't be there. I think. Oh, shut up now. Sorry,
1: that was a lot. No, no, no. no. Right. I,
0: would, I would second that. It's just the women who are, have been involved in women's sport, but particularly women's football, are absolutely remarkable. And in some ways, I mean, no, dis, no disrespect to men's football, but I think um, the stories are richer and the women who've been involved are just so extraordinary. That yeah, I, I come away sort of in awe of them and they're my absolute heroes. So if we can do anything to contribute to making their stories known a little bit more widely then you know, it's job done for us, I think.
1: I, I think you all have done it. And, and, and it's definitely a real book. And and by the way, much better than a lot of the books that you read about men's football. <laughs> it's not, it is, it, although you all are clearly, um, you know, that you respect and you, you are uh, just so impressed with the work that these women have done. It's not, it doesn't read hagiographically. It's not, you know, that pay on to these great women. It it For people who haven't read the book, there are kind of two parts, I would say. I, I don't know if that was an intentional thing, but there's the historical part, and then there's the, you know, what are current issues that we're facing in the league? And the historical part, which we've been talking about a little bit, I think could be kind of underlined by the notion of organizational challenges that just, again and again, women try to organize to play, in men's organizations say, no, you can't do that <laughs> um, and get in get in their way. So I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about, about that history for people who don't know anything about women's football or women's soccer in Australia. Um, where does it begin? How does it get its start? And what are some of the challenges it faces? You've got, I guess, two really good chapters, Roaring Twenties, and then not quite a half golden century that really delved into that. Um, so...
2: Like This is probably um, uh, where I was able to contribute um, most. Uh, Keith, uh, the research on women's football in the UK has become uh, incredibly rich now. There's lots of people working on it, but there hadn't been as much uh, work done here. Um, we knew there was a game played in Brisbane in 1921, uh, and it was deemed as a spectacular and Fiona and I both attended the centenary event to celebrate that last September. It was absolutely brilliant and that was organised by Football Queensland. Um, but what was less well-known was the fact that um, that was actually a culmination of a number of uh, football teams that had got off the ground in in the local area. Uh, the women had formed their own association, um they tried to affiliate with the men's association at the time, and the, and the men wouldn't have it. The chairman wouldn't have it, um, buying into the uh, propaganda that was being produced in the, in the United Kingdom about uh, not women, about a game, the game not being fit, uh, women not being fit to play football, um, you know, and, and all sorts of spurious concerns about damage to reproductive systems and, and all sorts of stuff. But actually, it was really just about. Um, men looking to protect a corner uh, from women who had this uh, tremendous uh, appeal uh, in their in their football. Uh, it was something different. They were drawing huge crowds, earning low, massive gates. Um, in 1920, on December um, 26th, 53,000 people watched um, Dick Kerr Ladies play against um, St Helens uh, at Everton's ground, Goodison Park. Um, that, that was followed up a few weeks later um, with a huge crowd at uh, Manchester, 31,000. The reports is it, at Manchester United's ground as well. And um, I think the problem was that the women were giving the money away to return servicemen's charities. And and um, obviously you can imagine these kind of stogie smoking factory owners who had previously been creaming all the profits uh, from the, the men's football, who, who were missing out on this profits, were kind of envious about how much money was being generated. Um, so that that was part of the that was part of the issue, I think. Plus as well, you had men returning from uh, returning from Europe, um, uh, and and coming back into the workplace, you know. And so uh, it was it was deemed as being the popularity of women's football was deemed as a threat to the men's game. Um, and then the the um, a couple of researchers, um, Alithia Melling, who was doing this research in the late 90s. And then Jean Williams, um, who uh, you and I talked about briefly before uh, we started the interview, just an absolute academic crush for me, um, started doing this brilliant work. And what, what they've kind of unpicked is that the straw, the the, the final straw really was when um, the the women who were playing football started raising money to support the striking minors, families, the, the mothers and children of the striking minors. And so we're... The football was being used as they saw to support a kind of radical purpose. Um, the that that was really it for the for the English Football Association, and they decided that they would ban women from playing football on English Football Association grounds. And when you ban people from playing on English Football Association grounds, it effectively means you can play football, you just can't play anywhere that you're able to play football. You know, and so um, that had a huge impact on the game across Europe. Not only that, um, what we saw um, in uh, Europe by the beginning of the 1970s where things were starting to pick up again and you had um, early European and, and World Cup tournaments starting to emerge in Europe. F- FIFA um, FIFA dampened things down again as well um, uh, by, by speaking to the associations and, and suggesting that they um, uh, control women's football um, and when I say control, um, um, that effectively just means suppress the women's game, you know. So um, the same thing happened again in the 70s. But by that time, the women just weren't having it by that time. You know, they were already started. It was already popular. The crowds for the games in the World Cup in the 70s were just enormous. You know, so there was clearly there was clearly a, a commercial opportunities there. Um, so it wasn't just the women who wanted to play then. You actually had other people being interested as well. Now, that's that was happening in Europe and Australia. It was a, a different story. Um, the uh, women really struggled uh, because I think uh, the Australian Soccer Federation, uh, as they were known at the time, were really unsure of what to do about uh, the women's game and the fact that there was this independent organisation and really, I think, um, were a bit naughty and tried to disrupt the game a bit as well. So, um, so it was a, a different kind of challenge. Uh, well, the women's game was being sponsored by Martini and Rossi, uh, and, and other people in Europe. Um, the Australian game was s- scraping and, and struggling, and women were paying their own way and having Lamington drives and, and all sorts to start funding it. So, and, and the whole way, um, as as Fiona has mentioned, as you've highlighted yourself, it, it was just it was just men getting in the way. Effectively, you know, not not all men. There were there were allies, you know. Uh, the 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 two guys uh, from Preston and Glasgow who owned the the company, the manufacturing company Dick Kerr, uh, foundries. They 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 were highly supportive for the women's team and, and actually sponsored the team until I think nineteen sixty five before before they folded. So, um, but effectively it was just men in positions of power just trying to make sure they held on to that power.
0: And sort of tangential to that, um, it was. When we were writing the first draft of the book and even subsequent drafts, it was one of the real challenges in how to convey some of these issues without constantly sounding really negative, because mm-hmm. what we, we really needed to frame it as here's some remarkable women who've done some remarkable things to overcome some really difficult odds. Uh, but it was a real, it was something we had to be really conscious of the whole time because it would have been really easy to just write a book complaining about how hard it was <laughs> to be a woman in football. I mean, you know, you could definitely have written that very easily. So yeah, we, we, it was a really conscious effort on our part to go, okay, we see that there were these men standing in the way that we we see that they were not getting funding or any kind of support. And, but how do we frame that as here's what they did to overcome that and how awesome are they?
1: Yeah. I loved the, the um, just the diligence and the hard work, but also the creativity and the (laughs) audacity of many of the (laughs) women. Uh, So I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about then, you know, some of the people you mentioned earlier, Lane Watson, Heather Reed, Moya Dodd, and this organization that I think gets good uh, good press in your book, the Australian Women's Soccer Association, where's that come from?
2: Um, well, it emerged uh, really because um, at the time, um, so in the early to mid 60s in Sydney, um, a woman called Pat O'Connor. Um, who was an immigrant from England, and her husband, they'd come over, they joined the um, St George Budapest team in Sydney, and Pat was the driving force behind a league in in, in, a, in, in Sydney City. Um, then um, at this, around the same time as that, you had a woman called Betty Hoare, who was um, instrumental in developing the game in, in Melbourne as well, and a whole bunch of—I mean—I'm just picking out a couple of names here to exemplify. There was obviously loads of women around them at the same time. Um, there was um, a a guy called Oscar, and I can't remember his second name now, but it's in the book um, in Western Australia, who was instrumental in, in managing the kind of a women's association there, and then in Queensland, um, that was where uh, Elaine um, Watson really emerged. She'd been in, involved in women's football, in men's football uh, in the early 60s. She was the first woman to referee a game of football in Australia. She refereed two men's teams in a game. She coached uh, her sons as well, uh, um, in teams as well. So she came in, she she effectively um, was, I think, one of the first um, to say, right, this is uh, this is enough. We need to fix this and start organising at a national level, state level, and then national level. So she was really the driving force behind uh, the game developing in Queensland, and then I um, like I think she was instrumental in the the organisation uh, meeting up to play in Sydney in that 1974 tournament. And by that time, um, there there was uh, all sorts of people involved, you know, and uh, like Heather Reid was there, and there was all sorts going on, and the um. It was a national a national competition to play state teams because the women saw obviously really early on that the only way to uh, to build uh, on the strengths was collectively, and so having a national organisation led to uh, having a a national team. It led to playing games overseas, you know, and uh, and and that had already started to happen during the seventies anyway, and um, so yeah, like that. Those are the kind of Key kind of, um, a uh, I, I guess hubs, um, for the game, and then and then coming together, the the AWSA emerged out of that. And then, uh, before you knew it, um, I think by the late 70s, you had, and um, they were already there's already scandals, there was teams playing across in a uh, international teams playing in the the invitational tournament in Asia, the, the women's game in Asia had really started to build momentum there as well. and then they started playing tests against New Zealand as well. And like and from that then you've you've got some they'd started to amass like a nucleus of really strong players. You you mentioned Moya, Sue Monteat was another, Connie eh, Connie Byrne was another. A eh, eh. Connie would later marry Jim Selby, who was the first coach of of the the team at the and then they were obviously the the kind of proto Matildas, you know, the the first national women's team and so the um uh, now you've got really good players hungry to play and gain experience and then they start looking at international tournaments and stuff as well so it was um, the, the AWSA was integral to building momentum for the game, not just in Australia but to connect with other associations like New Zealand uh, Women's Association as well and then uh, that led to the, the Oceania uh, group as well in, in the early 80s so um, and then and then really the they were in charge in the, of the governance of women's football right up until the Crawford Report um, uh, forced them all, forced everyone's hand, and made all the football associations all merge together. So, it, like, it was an incredible organisation, and like Heather Reid uh, as the CEO of it was like just a, a driving force, you know. And um, Elaine was uh, was there for a bit, and then away off doing other things. But there's like loads of brilliant people there who are still involved in women's football, like Kerry Harris. Uh, who's the, the chair of, of women on side and so, so many others who've been involved in women's football and refereeing and all sorts of stuff that um, uh, that, that, that have all come out of that organisation. So it's just a, it was just an amazing kind of engine for women's football.
0: I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not uh, as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal
1: on Spotify. I uh, I don't know if you want to jump in, Fiona, but I I mean, uh, if, if you since you mentioned the Crawford reportedly, I mean, that, that in some ways that comes up in your uh, chapter, making uh, their own way. And my reading on it was that it felt like you were writing about it as a, as a, what's the, what's the best way to put it? Uh, at best, maybe a mixed blessing. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. 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 So, yeah what, <laughs> what, what was your, all, what, what's your all, us take on that I mean so that chapter making their own way you really brought the game into the 90s and um so maybe you can tell us a little bit about what was going on in women's football and yeah if you <laughs> Honestly, know, no
2: better if you know, no better it was her dad that wrote that report wasn't <laughs> yeah no no relation no relation
0: um yeah I think that period in particular is such a tricky one when you're looking at women's football because, I mean, the men's football was taking all of the attention, but actually it was really, um, it was taking the attention and the resources from the women's game. So that's Mm -hmm. about the time that that the AWSA was essentially forced to go under the auspices of Soccer Australia um, or whatever, you know, and then they later changed to Football Federation Australia. Um, But they had their own issues and they were not really, Um, focused on women's football or interested in it or sending any resources that way. And Mm -hmm. so there was that real period around that time and around the Olympics where women's football um, just didn't ever get the injection of funding or attention that it could have. So I think when you look at women's football, particularly in the contemporary era, you can see so many, I guess, sliding doors moments where you think, oh, if that had just gone one different way, things would have been much further ahead, much more quickly. And, I mean, I can point to so many. So, for example, 2011, we were at the Women's World Cup. So I'm I'm conscious this is jumping quite a way ahead from the Crawford report, but it's a a good example of at the Women's World Cup, you'd come off the back of 2007 where SBS had shown every game. Um, We thought, you know, something, there was a documentary. We thought there would be some great stuff that would come from that, but it all kind of dissipated. And then you get to 2011 and they're not showing all the games at the World Cup, so that's a bit of a problem. They finally make it to the quarterfinals, at which point all the media get on board. So it is going to be, the game is going to be broadcast in Australia. And then the Matildas have an absolute, just a shocker of a game. It's just not up to their standard. But again, it was that, that cusp moment. If they had gone one step further in that quarterfinal, uh, everyone really would have sat up. Resources would have flowed into the game but instead they went home and it all kind of dissipated and then they didn't make the Olympics after that. So it fell away again and there's so many moments like that. So for me, the Crawford Report is a bit of a, it's a juncture or it's a kicking off of a decade or two where you just think, oh, if, yeah, if someone had just paid a bit more attention, thrown a few more resources their way, given them a few more opportunities, if a couple of games um, had gone their way, if there'd been some better sponsorship or some media coverage, we would have been... A little bit further ahead, it would have been more in the space where we are now because, for example, 2011, um, the US lost that final but they had such an outstanding tournament and they won. Everybody fell in love with them and so they went back to America and they were like heroes even though they'd actually lost the final and Australia could have been been like that if we'd gone one game more, Mm. if that makes any sense. So, yeah, (laughs) profit report, complicated feelings, I think. (laughs)
1: <laughs>
2: yeah, there's a cup there's a couple of brilliant sliding doors moments now. You've mentioned that Fiona, just before that as well, you know, like um the bid for the World Cup next year was Australia's third bid for the World Cup. Oh. You know, like the bid in nineteen ninety five really didn't stand a chance. That was for the nineteen ninety nine World Cup, but they were up against um the US bid, which was being bankrolled to like the tune of thirty million dollars or something. You know, and so so Australia knew there was no chance of them being able to compete with that. And we're talking about the AWSA working with um, people uh, at um, Football Australia at the time, the Australian Soccer Federation it was at the time. And then in 1999, they bid for the 2003 World Cup and they'd learned some really valuable lessons coming off the back of their first experience of doing that. They printed up this fantastic glossy brochure, like really done the numbers on it. They had a fantastic campaign. They went across to uh, the 1999 World Cup um, and like all sorts of people were involved. Maria Berry and, and all sorts of people were, were party to that and, and putting it together. And it, the, their bid um, was so good and so strong that people were congratulating them on having won the bid before it had actually been announced. Uh, and then um, the, the um, Chinese Football Association and FIFA... Um, struck some kind of deal, uh, and and FIFA uh, like on the on the brink of uh, awarding the tournament to Syria. Uh, then he uh, gave the tournament to new, to, to uh, China, and then um, uh, who then couldn't host it anyway? It was uh, the the SARS breakout meant it was hosted in in the US uh, in two thousand and three again. And um, that 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 if they would got that tournament, then that that would have had such a massive impact for the AWSA uh, just at this, just like like two thousand and three, you can imagine those two troubled decades that Fiona's just mentioned. It would have made such a difference to that. So, you, like if you if you think about it, like thirty million dollars the Americans were bankrolling their bid for in nineteen ninety nine. You know, um, the the Australian government helped out with five million dollars for the twenty twenty three bid. That that's that'll give you some idea of the kind of, of pressures around these these processes. So that was definitely a, a moment there. Where I think that that like things could have changed even before the Crawford Report came out, right? because the the Crawford Report was really about addressing the problems in men's football. You know, women's mm-hmm. football wasn't suffering from from the same problems. And actually, um, there's a book um, called um, "Shootout" by Ross Sully, um, which is an absolutely brilliant kind of um, scathing analysis of of. Um, the stuff that was going on around that period as well, if you wanted to look at that, into that further, it's a really brilliant book. So, yeah, there's a, I think, if you want you could probably mention more sliding doors moments as well. Eh?
0: Yeah, maybe even the calendar. I mean, I'm hesitant to mention that because I feel like the calendar gets a bit too much airtime.
1: It's the um, only thing so many... people might know, you know, if they're
0: not. Yeah, it really <laughs> is. And it's so tricky because I think there's much richer things that happened in women's football, but I also understand why it does get you know, um, but it's that same moment of there's no funding in women's football and although many of the players do feel quite empowered to have participated in the nude calendar, there's all these complicated um, feelings that you have around it because if they'd actually been paid properly, if they had the proper opportunities, they probably wouldn't have had to even consider participating in a nude calendar. So, yeah, it's another one of those sliding door moments and it also... Um, there were 12 players involved, but it did affect the entire team's God, yeah. reputation for decades. I think we've only recently kind of shaken it off a little bit, and I think it is still likely to pop up at various times, but
2: mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, um, I think as well, it's always worth keeping in mind the context around that as well. At the time, um, nude calendars in Western and global Northern cu- cultures, particularly in uh, in England and uh, in the US, you know, there was nude policemen and nude firemen and and, and all sorts of nude calendars it was it was all the rage at the time. So they were it wasn't really a, as much of a publicity grabbing stunt as as it's made out to be out of context. You know, um, uh, there's actually they've made a film about it. There's a really brilliant story about a country women's association in northern England doing one. You know, these women hiding behind their knitting and stuff. That was a, a a massive story uh, a couple of years just just maybe eighteen months before. So they were really a big deal at the time. Um, and and as well, I'd say that um, as, as Fiona said that at the time it was about raising some some pay for the players, uh, for, uh, some some uh, compensation for their efforts because they weren't being paid. They were pretty much volunteering, and even then, at the end of the day, they didn't even make that much money uh, from it. You know, the amount of money that they they each managed to gain from it was a pittance compared to. Um, a, as compared to, although there was the added benefit of some of them hey, being able to um, hey, leverage the experience and get some money doing a Japanese toothpaste advert after it, you know, and, and making a bit of extending the, the the funding from it afterwards, you know, but um, I think it's. Hopefully we've moved past it now. Uh, people are looking at the football now. I mean, the crowds at the, the Euros was amazing. People are watching the football. People see the crowds are really different in that. And so hopefully we can move beyond it.
0: And oh, i are finally getting the broadcast and the media coverage that they should have had all along. So, and that makes hmm. all the difference because when you can see the games, you can actually support the team and you can do that consistently. And that's what's really been absent, I think, even into the last five years or so.
2: even just buying supporters jerseys and stuff like that right buying replica jerseys that are made for women and stuff like that
0: oh huge i used to get because i was doing their social media i used to get all these direct messages and um yeah from fans sort of imploring me to tell them where they could possibly buy a matilda's jersey for themselves or for their children uh and it was such a difficult thing because i would constantly take those messages back to football federation australia and say hey look there's a market here there's people are really after these, but it was really difficult to justify. And obviously I understand because there was a great expense with jerseys, but it's really heartening to see now that that's the balance has finally tipped on that and you can get those jerseys. And hey, you know what? There is actually a market for it.
1: I'd, I'd say there's maybe a bigger market, although I, I have to admit a few out of... Uh, when did the US come into t- Sydney and play at ComBank against Matildas? We went with my daughter and um, she's... She was both of her parents are American, but she was born in Australia and has Australian citizenship. And we asked her, Do you want Team USA? You know, smiling, smiling, <laughs> or do you, want, do you want Matilda's? And she uh, said, No, no, Daddy, I'm Australian. I want Matilda's. So we went <laughs> everywhere. We went uh, to every shop in Bondi Junction trying to find a Matilda's jersey and couldn't find one. But yeah,
0: um, it's a bit hit and miss still for sure. Yeah.
1: But, uh, yeah, but she, you, so you have another fan. Uh, she only likes Matilda's swans and the Sydney Sixers because they wear pink, but really, as far as I'm concerned, it's as good as reason as any, I, I would uh, hearing you both talking about sliding door moments. So it made me think too, and we don't have to talk about this. I just thought I'd mention it. Uh, also the men's bid, um, and how much money the government spent on that mm-hmm. in, a, in an utterly, um, futile effort to get the men's game. And if they contributed that money instead to the women's side, they almost certainly would have. <laughs>
0: brought- well, yeah. yeah. Do you know, fun fact is I was actually in the, I was a crowd extra in that ad for that failed bid. So, oh, no. and I, <laughs> yeah. And I also even went aboard an inflatable kangaroo to be part of that ad and oh. claimed it on my tax that year. Cause I did get paid, <laughs> on the which was, um, I know. I think my accountant every year when I turn up and I go, he's like, are you seriously trying to claim an inflatable kangaroo? And I was like, yes, I am. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it is a bit of a sore point because I was so excited to be in that ad and it was such a crushing moment. And, yeah, it is, like you say, there's so much money, that, so much money that's thrown at the men's game with very little thought. I mean, and there's no – they are not required to justify every cent in the same way that women's sport is, whereas you were given so little in women's sport. And yet you are, you know, eking out every cent and you're having to justify that there's, you know, there's a market or that you really do deserve this money. And I just, I find that quite things that are given to the men by default without any second thought. Uh, you have to justify and justify and justify in women's sport.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't mean to, I, if you wanted to say something, Lee, I don't mean to interrupt, but you, your last chapters of your book deal with some of the kind of contemporary issues that facing women's. Uh, football women's soccer here in australia so you have your your kicking domestic goals show them the money overcoming injuries coaches the future is female uh, women's world cup international tournaments and where do you go from here but one of your chapters is about money and i I, i'm on the record i've written a few pieces about basically saying pay the women yeah um (laughs) But well, it was interesting
0: we yeah. the week we released the book and i had written obviously that pay parody or a lot of those la- later chapters because it's the more contemporary stuff um the the week we released the book the matildas announced their groundbreaking pay parity deal so i had this moment and lee had it as well of this absolute euphoria of releasing this book and absolute euphoria of you know hearing the matildas have achieved pay parity and then that sheer terror where you think oh my god is our book immediately out of date
1: um, <laughs> no, so it's impact. It's impact. Did,
0: it, was, it was amazing though because I went back and reread it and it remarkably did actually hold up like obviously it didn't say that they'd achieved pay parity but you know I don't know thanking my past self how I'd written the chapter was actually still still kind of held up and it still made a lot of sense so I was very relieved very pleased and obviously then media really wanted to talk to us about the book because suddenly you know, everyone's talking about the Matildas pay parity. So it was a, it was impeccable timing. We have to say.
1: Well, maybe you can tell us a little bit about about the issue for people who aren't because not all of our listeners are Australians, so they wouldn't won't be familiar with with um what the pay disparity was like in Australian football, and maybe why it was so um so shocking that the Matildas <laughs> were. <laughs> Were uh, paid so much less than the men.
2: Oh, <laughs> well, I think there's a um, a really brilliant example of um, the differences when you look at um, the since 2016, the um, US women's national team have been earning more revenue for US um, soccer than the men's team. And in 2016, when that happened, the men's team. Men's players were still being paid more than five times the salary of what the women's players were being paid, and at that point, they'd already won like two, three, two World Cups, maybe three World Cups, you know. And so you're looking at paying your your World Cup winners um, a fifth of what the men's team are being paid. So, like, it, it, even if you don't go close to home, then that there's the perfect example, and it's. Um, and the the fact that it's not just about it wasn't just about parity it's become a political statement for for football associations to pay the women the same as the men you know it like speaks to how a uh, dramatic a move it is for outside of the kind of orthodoxy of a way the way that football's governed you know mm-hmm. i think there's that even before you look at the scale of the difference like and
0: i could probably just add to that is i was working directly with the matildas doing their social media at the time and I saw firsthand just how hard the players were working and how many things they were juggling. They were all working casual jobs. Uh, they were all studying. They were all then so generous. Every time I asked them to do something, there was never any complaint. I mean, they must have been exhausted fitting in everything that they were doing plus doing all their training as an elite athlete. And one, I put the example in the book, but Katrina Gori was named the best player in Asia. And she literally hmm. flew back. So they, they flew her back a business class seat. Um, but she went straight from there to working in a cafe because you can be the best player in Asia, but when you're a woman, you're not paid enough. So you have to still go work a casual job in a cafe. And she was actually having to field media inquiries by the, you know, the rubbish bins out the back of the cafe uh, on her break because that's how much she was having to juggle just to, yeah. And it, for me, that was a really stark reminder of you can be the best player and you still can't pay your bills
2: thankfully things are changing though you know like um the the amount of football that's uh, being um, generated in Europe uh, at the moment there you, you've have just had the the biggest transfer fee for for a, a women player in um, the last few in Man City's moved to to um I think Barcelona for 350,000 pounds you know so um that's that's a sign of it's it will be a race now for clubs to get to the first million pound signing um, and that'll be like that happened in 1981 in in, in uh, English football, so that'll give you an idea of how long it's taken for things to change. You know, um, uh, uh, well for a long, like, how long it's taken for women to receive similar recognition to the men, and all, all the rubbish about uh, people not wanting to watch it and there not being an audience in that. I think like you only just have to look at the Euros tournament there in, in June and July to see that that's that's a nonsense. You know, they they, they couldn't. Um, they couldn't. The tickets were un- like difficult to get. You know, they were selling out all the stadiums. Um, massive crowds, eighteen million people watching it from home in England. Same in Germany. Uh, watching the final. You know, like like people are happy to watch it. They they love the quality of the football. Um, yeah, so it's it's really just like people who don't know any better uh, keep taking uh, cheap shots uh, at the women's game um out of ignorance more than anything else rather than giving it a chance you know like I still meet football supporters now like being football supporters all their lives who are like oh I'm not watching the women's football you know and I'd be like "Ah, sort yourself out you know like just watch it just have a look and see the football is amazing you know so um I think I think things are, are will change you know like um really dramatically but we're already on the way and I think even better than that when you look at clubs like Lewis FC and um, just outside Brighton in England there where the women it's a club level the women are being paid the same as the men Um it's a community club all uh, families are going serving they're serving fresh healthy food at the food stand instead of pies and bovros and, and the chips you know and uh, it's become a the whole of community thing rather than it just being about a guy's going to watch a game of football on a Saturday afternoon. You know, it's, it's a, like that, that's the kind of thing that you go to the women's football for. It's great crack, it's safe, it's friendly, it's you know, it's a buzz, you know? And so, like, the more people see that, then the more people will want to go.
0: And if I could just add to that, I mean, I, it's, I don't, I will never say that missing out on the 2003 Women's World Cup bid was a good thing. But, gee, I think we've got to, you know hosting it in 2023 is probably the timing could not be better I think Mm. women's football is on such um the the ascendancy is just enormous and I think we could not have timed it better so I guess speaking of you know good timing I don't think we could have timed it better to be hosting a world cup I mean everybody is really starting to get on board with women's football and if you're looking at the euros you think god it can only like how much bigger can it get it's just going to be massive
1: no I'm maybe so one of your chapters and by the way for people who are listening um all these chapters on the contemporary issues they're really rich i really liked one of my favorite for example was about the coaching um but i since you all are uh, seem keen to chat about um, women's world cup and the trajectory uh, and the timing of it i wonder if you could talk about the trajectory of the matildas i mean um you know wh- where do we obviously the first women's team national team in Australia wasn't the Matildas where do we get the Matildas from what's what's their trajectory been in the last you know 20 years and um maybe your own thoughts on if we'll get to see them uh, hoisting any trophies soon <laughs> <laughs> you may hope that but as you might guess I have a different view
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean Lee do you want to start so look well, the the, the... Matildas, the name didn't arrive until nineteen ninety five. I think yeah. it was a competition, yeah. and the um, uh, it could have been like, thankfully, it landed on the Matildas. It could have been all sorts of mad stuff, um, but the the first the Australian nas- women's national team, the first one, uh, emerged out of um, those uh, national competitions I talked about in the late seventies, where each of the state uh, football associations were. Uh, congregating in a different state each time to play a a national level tournament. Uh, And then the best, the the, the squad for the national team was selected from that. And then they started playing tests and New Zealand came here and and they went across New Zealand and and played a few test matches and then started getting involved. In 1983, they went and played the Oceania Cup in in Numia, New Caledonia, and they played against Fiji and um, New Caledonia, uh, and um, oh, I think I can't remember if PNG were there or not, but New Zealand uh, won that tournament in 1983, and so that really that's for this region that that's the first time international football. Those are the first times that international football had started to was was being played, you know. And you've got players like we said Moya, but but also other players, um, the the lassies from from Brisbane, um, oh, Joe. Joe and our sister Kerry. Mil- Milman? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Joe Milman and our sister Kerry. And I think Joe played like six hundred club games for our club in Easts okay. in Brisbane. Yeah, like it's just, like incredible, right? And, and was never
0: benched, I don't
2: think. And then, aye, and, yeah. Um and then still still heavily involved in the game now. And um the um I think she played like she played an amazing amount of caps. And consider them, like they, they might have only been seen to have playing like maybe 12 10 or 12 full internationals between uh, 1979 and, and 1987, you know. So, for them to have gained as many caps as they had over the course of a decade, that's that's an international career for a footballer, you know. It's um, it's, these are these are just remarkable, uh, remarkable women, really. That, that and that was before they became the Matildas, really. And but since since the 90s, where people have started paying attention, and Fiona's already mentioned 2007, uh, which was. A real kind of uh, watershed moment, I think, and then each of the World Cups has got successfully, uh, successfully bigger in terms of people's awareness, uh, attention. Uh, that the 2019 tournament was was incredible. You know, every game was televised on SBS, picking up massive audiences, and you know, like the I think there was like an estimated 5,000 uh, Australian fans travelled to uh, France and, and travelled with the team and like that. Like that's an an amazing measure of popularity in the game. So, and now you've got the likes of Ellie Carpenter picked regularly. <laughs> I say regularly, uh, picking up uh, European Champions League medals and Sam Kerr on on million dollar, two million dollar contracts and all that. You know, it's it's just been a phenomenal a uh, rise to to popularity. But it's all based on like hard work, quality, and luckily. There's enough people still around who played in those early days who are able to kind of keep people grounded and remind them of and Sam herself, you know, like um, it was things were pretty rough when she started her international career as well. So there's this kind of brilliant sense of uh, being grounded and there's like you know I don't think anybody's allowed to be a diva too much anyway, you know, and uh, in the way that we see in men's football, you know, so so there is that.
0: And I would probably just add to that is. The product has always been good. It's just that there hasn't been the supporting resources Mm -hmm. around it, whether that's the investment so the players can actually focus on their football or it's the sponsorship or it's the media coverage. And that's probably the difference we've seen in the recent decades. And what's really exciting is we're starting to see all those extra pieces that are always sitting around men's football, but we're now starting to see them sit around women's football. And I don't feel like they're going away, whereas in the past, just because you got it once, it didn't mean that it was going to stay there. Uh, And I would probably just add, you know, the Matildas are not going to win the World Cup and if we can reset our expectations (laughs) a little bit, they're a really good team. Like they really are and they're a top 10 team but they're not a top two team yet. Like we've got a long way to go in our football development in Australia. Uh, So I really, really just want to reset expectations that the the win is actually us hosting the World Cup. What Australia and New Zealand will gain from hosting it um, is – is already enormous and so you know we've already won with that however the Matildas go from here is going to be you know that's a bonus really
1: yeah yeah I I, I personally would probably tip a European side to win this, yeah. this time around but um you never know I mean the balls round. the game lasts 90 minutes what else do we know
0: <laughs> look I wouldn't um, ever discount the US either they've got that real um, that mentality of like, we are gonna, we are gonna take it right up to our position. So yeah, European
1: or the US. The US has a lot of experience. I think there needs to be a bit of a change of the guard. And I wonder what the team will look like that they bring. But um, there's a lot of a lot of great players um, uh, here in Australia, over in Europe and in the US that are a lot of fun to watch. I want to, I want to mention one thing, too, about about um, your your all's book. Uh, we haven't talked that much about it, but for listeners, uh, this is not just a book about the Matildas or like the top, um, you know, 25 or 30 women's players at any time. Uh, this engages a lot with the, the bottom and the top. So it's uh, many of the chapters deal with some of the more organizational issues as well. So I, I know we're talking about kind of the highlight stuff, um, but that's not that's everything that's in the book. Um so I guess I just want to finish by asking you kind of um I guess two two more questions quickly. Um the first would be, and I hopefully both of you answer this for in from our earlier conversation. It sounds like you'll have you'll have interesting things to say. But the first question would be um, you know, what's the future then for Australian women's football? Is it all up or um are is there are there clouds on the horizon? Hopefully not. And the second question would be um after you know we're done talking about this, what other things can we look forward to reading from you next? Uh, so I know you both were joking about next books, next projects uh, before and I'd love to hear about them.
0: Sure, I'll let you start, Lee, if you'd like.
2: Um I thanks. Um Luke, I think um I I was a I am um, Happened to hear Fiona uh, ring the ring that message about um, temp, 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 temper temp our expectations about World Cups, and I think you're right that um, the way the game is in Europe at the moment, like the quality of the football, Germany played in that final without their best player. You know, like it's they, like both those teams that got to the finals of the Euros are going to be really hard uh, for the Americans or the Canadians to beat. Um, so it's it's like if you wanted that kind of bellwether on where the football's at um, the quality of the football that we'll see the World Cup next year will be the best best women's football we've ever seen, I think um, so that's something that's really worth looking forward to, I think that um, whilst the the Matildas squad uh, may not be at the same level as those teams I've just mentioned, uh, what we're seeing in, in players like uh, Cooney Ross and uh, Caracuni Cross, sorry, and and Courtney Vine and and, and Nalassie Nevin. and you know, like there's some fantastic young players, Mary Fowler coming through, you know, um, so so the people like um, Ray Dower and uh, and the uh, and the young Matildas coach as well, um, Le- Leah Blaney, is it is it Leah Blaney? Yeah have I got that right? Yeah, Tanya Elspie um, as
0: well. Yep. Yeah, you
2: know, like the, these these are coaches who have ensured that we're not just looking at like a golden generation of players. You know, there's re- a real kind of pipeline of quality coming through. So that's fantastic. I think that's that's really happening um, in terms of, of how the game goes. And then did you want me to hand to you now, Fiona, before I start banging on about the books? That I'm oh, no, on?
0: go for it. You're all right. Um,
2: yeah. So I'm, we, I'm working on um, three books at the moment, Keith. Um, one we're just about to put finish putting together is a, an anthology of Uh, called Intersections of uh, Creative Writing, Sport and Society, where we've put together an anthology about creative writing and sport uh, and all all different facets of how creative writing and and sport are used and uh, are come together. Um, Then um, I'm about halfway through finishing writing up a book called uh, Women's Soccer in Oceania. Um, That's why I was across in uh, Fiji for the OFC Women's Nations Cup really brilliant tournament to be at because with uh, New Zealand, who would usually be the team that wins that tournament, uh, hosting the the Women's World Cup, um, they've automatically qualified. So for the first time in that tournament's history, um, it was looking like it it was um, definitely going to be a different team from Australia or New Zealand who have dominated that tournament in the past. So that was really exciting to be there for that. And Fiji got to the final. So as you can imagine, it, it was really brilliant. Um the um so we're working on that and then no sooner will that one be finished in November, we'll finish up writing one called um a uh, beach soccer history. So we've been uh, looking at and investigating the development and the history of, of the game of beach soccer. Um so and I think all three of those all come out next year with um Rutledge and in Springer uh, as the anthologies with Springer. So um that that'll be really exciting to to have them done. And I'm uh, to be honest with you. I, I'm in my happy place. That's where I love working on that stuff. So yeah, it's been really, it's been really busy, as you can imagine, but also really exciting too.
0: So if I go back to the first question, when you were saying, um, "What does you know, what does the future look like, and is it going to be sort of all upwards from here?" I think we're going to hit some. There are going to be some clouds, and that's actually probably not a bad thing because we've had a few years where it's been. Uh, very exciting for women's football but I think we need to really shore up some of those foundations Um, and maybe that is one of those is resetting the expectations around the Matildas are a really good team but they need they need more resourcing and more development pathways for players coming through Uh, we've had the golden generation and where we need something a little bit more solid than just talent Uh, we've had we need some more resourcing so you really are seeing players come through those early years because that's what what's happening in Europe now Uh, I think maybe going back to when you you mentioned coaching before Keith and that's a space where there really is some room for improvement we as you know we haven't got uh, a woman coaching the national women's team whereas Germany for example has a a policy of uh, developing women coaches and even the players they go and do I think if I understand this correctly, they also do their licenses. So they're bringing through players and giving them a career path past their playing years. So I think lots of opportunities in that space for Australia to do a little bit better and so that maybe the next World Cup we can actually have a woman coaching and maybe an Australian woman. I mean, there's women like Ray Dower who are fantastic or Leah Blaney, Tanya Oxtoby is as Lee mentioned, and maybe it's time for them, or Mel Andreata, maybe it's time for them to have the mentorship and the support so that they can actually really succeed in that top job as well. Uh, In terms of next things is I've got a book coming out as well. Uh, It's about Women's World Cups. So it will be out uh, early next year, ahead of the World Cup. So a bit like Lee, I am feverishly (laughs) trying to get that finished. Uh, And yeah, then just really looking forward to the World Cup. I think it's I know it's going to be big. I've been to a couple of the other World Cups and I've seen them grow year on year and all the viewer numbers, all the crowd figures, um, the quality of the football you know surpasses the previous World Cup every time you see one. But I still can't quite imagine how good 2023 is going to be. I just think um, what we're going to see in terms of the quality of the football but also suddenly that awakening of um, worldwide interest in women's football As Yeah, if the Euros were anything to go by, I think it's just going to be extraordinary.
1: I know I'll be in the audience and probably my family as as well. I'm very much looking forward to the Women's World Cup here in Australia. Oh, man, this has been such a great conversation, Lee and Fiona. I've really enjoyed it. Um, Thank you both so much for joining me.
0: Thanks for having us. It's been fun.
1: Thanks very much,
2: Keith. Aye, it's great. Thanks for reading the book and, and, and giving us the opportunity to talk about it.
1: No, that, that, the, the second best part of the, this gig, other than getting to talk to other fascinating researchers, is getting to read the books and having a good <laughs> excuse to go, oh, no, I just need to read this book. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thank you both. Yeah. So you all have been listening to uh, New Books in Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. I've been speaking with Dr. Fiona Crawford, who's a writer, editor, and researcher uh, whose work engages with social, environmental, and sports issues, and who writes for a range of publications, including 442, and who works frequently with Football Australia, and Dr. Lee McGowan, who's a researcher, writer, and teacher at the University of Sunshine Coast. His primary research interests are the intersection of sports, culture, and community engagement, and we've been talking about their fantastic. Yes, it's a real book. <laughs> 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 Never say it's a very real book. You can you can pick it up very easily. Never say die. The hundred-year overnight success of Australian women's football, out from the University of New South Wales Press in 2019, in a very handsome paperback that I that I have here next to me. And uh, of course, I'm Keith Rathbone, uh, coming to you live as I say from Macquarie University. Thank you very much for joining us.